On August 24, 1989, at the Hilton Hotel in New York City, only blocks from the home of Major League Baseball, Commissioner A. Bartlett Giamatti, standing before baseball's famed logo banner, announced that Cincinnati Reds manager and famed player Pete Rose had accepted baseball's ultimate sanction, lifetime ineligibility. The banishment for life of Pete Rose from baseball is the, is the sad end of a sorry episode. One of the game's greatest players has engaged in a variety of acts which have stained the game. And he must now live with the consequences of those acts. Rose responded within moments from where he believed was his cloistered sanctuary in Cincinnati. He threw down a new gauntlet of defiant trickery to cloak his wrongdoing that he wanted others to witness. The silhouetted banner and baseball's logo, poised in red, white, and blue, the colors of America's pastime, seemed in that moment wholly dependent on Giamatti's ethical strength to withstand the spreading force of Rose's piercing defiance. Rose displayed it, as we all know now, with the big lie. Here's Pete Rose. Well, regardless of what the commissioner said today, uh, I did not bet on baseball. Rose established the battlefield, or thought he did, filled with deception, pitfalls, malice, greed, and criminals, who Giamatti, the most experienced of Renaissance scholars, called the snakes in the garden. Rose had allies, lawyers, book publishers, and writers, who one recent commentator, Ben Ryder of Sports Illustrated, described as those searching for the edge, when he said, quote, the line between gamesmanship and cheating was always primarily between ethics and norms. At stake for Giamatti in 1989 was Rose's ethics and his confidence in having none. The mentality that Rose had unleashed that could now be watched wasn't just gambling, and it wasn't just Rose. Those who allowed it and those watching, and no one is excluded, not owners or managers or commissioners, were described by Giamatti biographer Neil Thomas Proto as baseball's analogy to the amoral mentality of early Mark Zuckerberg. And yet, for a shining moment, those men deeply entangled or quietly in preparation had to contend with the most formidable adversary since Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis gave baseball its reprieve from likely doom in 1919. Here's Neil, author of Fearless. Rose thought he had set out the battlefield. Giamatti was far more foresighted. He understood the Renaissance epic quest, numerous and changing battles, against men condemned to Dante's purgatory, to cheaters and liars and manipulators of the public trust in baseball who lurked beneath the horizon, some who already colluded and were caught, others who would emerge in time as they did with steroids, then boldly in Houston and Boston, and recently with the deliberate unauthorized manipulation of the baseball. Giamatti was committed to the ethical and moral attainment of the Elysian field, not for its mythological place in the poet's mind, but its place in Hoboken, New Jersey, for its fans, those who come for the authentic game, those young players with aspirations, often since childhood, who can only succeed because of fairness and the rules that ensured it. Diane, to understand what Giamatti really saw in Rose, foremost, you need to understand Giamatti. I'm Diane Smith, and this is Downfall, Episode 1, The Threat and the Strategy, written and devised by Neil Thomas Proto, production, sound, and editing by Baobab Tree Studios, music provided by freeplaymusic.com. 
Special gratitude to Yale University's Manuscripts and Archives, the Baseball Hall of Fame, Peter Norton Symphony Space Selected Shorts, CNN, and Associate Professor and Actor Marcus Bartlett Giamatti of Temple University's School of Theater, Film, and Media Arts. February 1986, Pete Rose is a national star. Ty Cobb's record of total hits, broken. Giamatti is not yet in baseball. We're taking you to the Yale University campus, to Giamatti's moral and ethical confrontation with baseball commissioner Peter Ubroth, to Giamatti's insightful anticipation of danger ahead, a moment not fully appreciated until now. We are in a grand oak-paneled hall, the anticipation is uniquely high. The hall is full. Four panelists are on the stage, each vibrant, informed, experienced, tough in their way. Yale President A. Bartlett Giamatti, baseball commissioner Peter Uberoth, Boston Globe writer Peter Gammons, and New Yorker magazine writer Roger Angel. This is not an academic discussion. It's about baseball and the power to affect its future. The moderator is Walter Littell, Yale's Director of Public Affairs and the Pointer Fellowship. Listen to the question he poses for the four to answer. They've been asked to look at the national pastime from the perspective of the title of our proceedings. Does baseball have a future or does it have a great past ahead of it? Littell turns immediately to how they'd evaluate the previous 1985 season. Uberoth describes it with upbeat images of records broken, strikes settled, everyone content. Roger Angel is far less sanguine. He worries about drug usage and the failure of owners and the commissioner to do anything other than shift the burden to the players, to the unease of the fans. Giamatti, however, moves the expectation to a different level, his discontent with baseball and with Uberoth's platitudes. Here's Giamatti. I had a feeling that baseball was undergoing tremendous internal dislocations, tremendous internal stress, and that it had not found a way fully of resolving them, and that for the first time you could see that, in fact, in and on the field of play as much as you could off it. So it was, for me, an exciting, but I must confess, profoundly melancholy season for that reason. Neil, what can you add? Giamatti recognized that baseball, the game on the field, was ripe for deeper harm. At base was money, the greed and complacency that encouraged cheating and not just by players. It's a more exacting standard of expectation than Uberoff's. Diane, it was during this time, 1985 and 1986, that Pete Rose was secretly and confidently betting on baseball games. Second, Rose and sports writer Roger Kahn recognized money was to be made in Rose's story, if, of course, it was told as Rose and Kahn wanted. Warner Books had already advanced $100,000. Greed and gambling were now in play. Rose and others understood there was opportunity in baseball's dislocation and stress. And third, this may have been the beginning of Jamadi's formal recognition of Uberoth's ambivalence about the moral and ethical risk of harm to baseball. And as we'll explore in episode two, Uberoth had engaged in his own form of illegal, collusive, and unethical behavior. You mean why in 1989, Commissioner-designate Giamatti and his deputy, Faye Vincent, 
take the Rose controversy away from Yubaroff? That's exactly what I mean. But back to 1986, Yale. Giamatti lays bare his critical principle. There is a tragedy developing because the fact is that the people who both own and play baseball hold a public trust and the public will withdraw its faith and its interest and that will have economic and even other impact if baseball is not perceived as important enough to the people who in fact control it. A public trust owed by the people who in fact control baseball, Uberoff included. Prescient as ever, Giamatti recognized there is a tragedy developing. This is how he described it. Then the irreparable damage to the game will transcend any irreparable damage that's already happened to players and families, and indeed, to some extent, I think, to the faith that the public has in the game already. If one were to add to inattention or non-collaborative efforts to solve this problem, if one were to add to that one major gambling scandal, then you would have a free American institution in very serious trouble. And uh, I don't think that's something to be taken lightly. One major gambling scandal. I'm Diane Smith, and this is Downfall, Episode 1, The Threat and the Strategy. Barchi Amati becomes president of the National League in December 1986. To explore this moment, this evolving clash within baseball and with Pete Rose and his cohorts that was in fact much bigger than gambling by 1989, I welcome once again Neil Proto. The duty of the public trust is not in Rose's lexicon or recognizable in his conduct nor in the people who aided him. It also was under threat in baseball's mentality about itself and its place in America. Rose sees and hears that in 1986. Go back to the Yale panel for a moment. Jamadi and Roger Angel focused on the enormous disparity, a growing detachment between the salaries players make and the average income of fans, especially blue-collar fans. Angel describes the rise of anger, bitterness, and cynicism by fans directed against players. The amounts of money from television are absurd, Jamadi said, and sees its distortive harm in the mentality of owners and players and non-players. Angel connects that mentality especially to the owners who merge baseball with larger forces, money, and a different amoral culture, not to what the game is about. Baseball, Angel says, quote, is not indestructible. Yet Uberoff doesn't share their apprehension, and certainly not about greed or television. He makes clear that Major League Baseball players are like rock stars, actors in soaps, the top record people, entertainers, people in corporate boardrooms. They are not overpaid, and there should not be a salary cap. It's not about salary caps, Diane. It's about greed and the Zuckerberg mentality, already prevalent among owners and Uberoth because of the larger forces they let in and sought to emulate. And as we'll witness with Rose and later with the Astros and the Red Sox, it's about who's best at gaining the edge. It's no longer about baseball or ethics. At Yale, Uberoth equivocated. Rose and others heard that as well. And to affirm your point, here is Giamatti trying at the end of the Yale discussion to encourage Uberoth to move with more certainty in a different direction. Values, family values, values of morality, ethics. 
And I think that's the right choice. Baseball will have a bright future if this commissioner continues to make the issues of values more important than the issues of the industry, because that's finally why we all love baseball. It appeals to our, appeals to our spiritual part. So I think in some respects, uh, the commissioner has become a very visible figure. None of Giamatti's admonition deterred Rose or his cohorts. Rose's gambling and book deal continued into 1987 and 1988. Now he and Roger Kahn had a new publisher with deeper pockets, Macmillan Publishing Company. They all see money and how to use the game of baseball to make it. Giamatti is now president of the National League, poised to become commissioner in April 1989 when Uberoth's term ends. The direct confrontation between Giamatti and Uberoth and with Rose will soon emerge. Let's pause for a moment and return to Neil Proto's opening admonition about understanding Giamatti. In Fearless, you examined Giamatti's childhood, Neil, his own embrace of baseball, his experience, and what he'd witnessed and battled at Yale, and what he brought to baseball when the responsibility was his to exercise. It was where you got the book's title, Fearless, and the Battle for Fairness in America, right? Yes, Diane, that is correct. His love of baseball came in part from his grandmother. She was an avid Red Sox fan since the days of Tris Speaker and Smokey Joe Wood. And she'd witnessed the 1919 scandal that gave rise to Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Bart played in sandlots, wrote about baseball for a camp newspaper, and later traveled with his high school team as a manager. But fearless was a term used by his friends to describe his play as quarterback in rough-touch football games against bigger kids. Two realities emerged from that experience that remained and were refined throughout his life. Here's the way it was conveyed to me, and I wrote it. Quote, They agreed on the rules of the game and stuck to them. Order meant fairness. For as skinny a kid as he was, on the field neither size nor the seemingly unintentional block that sent him sprawling deterred his persistence or disrupted his focus. He was fearless. You wrote as well that he had created an Italian-American all-star team and had a deep attachment to the ethical conduct and skill of Boston Red Sox second baseman Bobby Doerr because Doerr on the field always needed to, quote, stay in the game. Giamatti's recollection of his first baseball game at Fenway Park also captures that love of the game that he seemed never to lose and the way he listened to the game in his friend Frankie White's father's Chevrolet, as he put it, doubtless running down the battery. And then there is Yale. Yale. The enduring lesson not fully understood in anything I've read about him by baseball writers was that Yale neither taught nor practiced fairness. Its discriminatory treatment of Italian immigrants, neighborhoods, African Americans, Catholics, Jews, and those it considered unfit through sterilization, immigration restriction, urban renewal, and deliberately taught condescension. Bart's father was born in New Haven. He was subjected to it. Bart knew this history when he became president of Yale, and he challenged it. The discrimination was directed against him immediately. Rules mattered because it was the only way to stop the discrimination and condescension and to ensure fairness. And Diane to come full circle. He was an informed, powerful advocate during his time as president for Yale educating students to be responsible citizens 
to contribute daily to their community and society through the civic duty of the private life. No special privilege, no condescension, no exclusion of others. It was not popular except among students. It's this informed view of duty, fearlessly practiced, that he brought to baseball. And it was central to his insistence that baseball owners and players and commissioners owe a public trust. Pete Rose was the necessary and critical beginning of that fearless advocacy. We need to stay in this pause before we reach Rose. There is an interim stop of considerable moment, February 1st, 1989, only weeks before Giamatti learned about Rose and less than two months before becoming commissioner. Giamatti is invited to lecture at the University of Michigan Law School. It's here that he defined the battlefield. As Neil Proto put it recently, quote, he made his intention plain and public. He called out to the dark forces in baseball, stated that he knew them, past and present, and their vulnerability to challenge, his challenge. He laid the battlefield strategy, the intellect and his duty as weaponry for the quest he knew was necessary. Bart's son Marcus is going to read his father's words, reformed and abbreviated for our purpose, and remain for his own critical thoughts, including in episode two. Let's go to Ann Arbor, Marcus Giamatti. Diane, the University of Michigan Law School is a special setting historically, which my father recognized. Its graduates included Branch Rickey, who owned the Brooklyn Dodgers and brought into Major League Baseball Jackie Robinson, then playing in the Negro League. It was a hard, sometimes ugly time, but it reflected what my father called, quote, a tremendous promise to play the game by the rules of the Constitution and the American dream. For the first time, a black American was on America's most privileged version of the level playing field. He was there as an equal because of his skill. The level playing field. And he melded these convictions into the principal beliefs everyone should expect when shortly the duty as commissioner would be his to exercise. Here's my father, Bart Giamatti. The conventional quality of contests lies in the fact that games are rule-bound. By imposing identical conditions and norms upon play, the essential assumption of all the rules is that skill or merit will win out. This is where he anticipates Pete Rose. Here's my father. The cultic dimension of sports, with the attendant fanaticism of some fans, is dangerous. Shortcuts to specialness can also be mistaken as a way to find advantage, an edge, meaningful in that world, totally absorbed. Some feel invulnerable, invincible, completely exempt from conventional expectations and from the demands of other conventions and completely protected from sanction. And in his compelling way, rhetorically and practically, he anticipates more battles to come. Yes. He knows the epic of battle, that there is always more to come, and in doing so, it goes full circle, back to the level playing field and fairness for everyone and the authentic game on the field. Here's my father. A more serious, because premeditated, act in sports is cheating. Cheating has no organic basis in a game. 
it is a premeditated act that strikes at the basic convention that if everyone plays by identical conditions and rules and with identical equipment in a contest designed to declare a winner, skill or merit, sheer ability will win the day. The basic convention of any game is the assumption of the level playing field, that all begin as equals above board. Without the convention, there is no contest. Cheating, a covert act to acquire a covert advantage, strikes at the heart of this basic convention of openness and equality and the agreement that they are essential. If cheating is not dealt with swiftly and severely, the game will have no integrity, no internal authenticity. Diane, I'm going to stop here to say that this next part of my father's thinking was central to his being about life and his duty for the public trust as commissioner. Here's my father. The highly moralized because rule-bound world in any sport is very fragile in the face of the amoral quest for betterment, the hunger to win at any cost, even at the cost of destroying the game, the game being the only context where winning in this way has any meaning whatsoever. When those running a sport do not believe their own conventions, then the essential convention of a sport as meritocracy in every sense will be undermined. When laxity on that scale occurs, then cheating on a large scale metastatizes. This is Diane Smith, and this is Downfall, Episode 1, The Challenge and the Strategy, written and devised by Neil Thomas Proto, production sound and editing by Baobab Tree Studios, music provided by freeplaymusic.com, special gratitude to Yale University's Manuscripts and Archives, the Baseball Hall of Fame, Peter Norton Symphony Space Selected Shorts, CNN, and associate professor and actor Marcus Bartlett Giamatti of Temple University School of Theater, Film, and Media Arts. It's now mid-February, 1989. The commissioner's office in Major League Baseball, 350 Park Avenue, New York City. Yubarov's term will expire on April 1st, 1989. He's ready to inform Commissioner-elect Giamatti and Deputy Commissioner Vincent about what he's learned about Pete Rose. One overriding factor that governs their meeting is the law, the rule in baseball. It goes back to 1919 and Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis and is posted in every clubhouse in Major League Baseball, including Cincinnati's. There's nothing complex about it. Quote, Rule 21, Misconduct, Section D2. Any player, umpire, or club or league official who shall bet any sum whatsoever upon any baseball game in connection with which the better has a duty to perform shall be declared permanently ineligible. Neil, what do we know about these meetings among Giamatti, Vincent, and Uberoff, including later with Rose and his lawyers? Foremost, keep in mind the tension at Yale in 1986 between Giamatti and Uberoff about values, ethics, morals, and money, and Jamani's unease about the emerging tragedy and the prospect of a gambling scandal. Jamani brought into these meetings in 1989 an informed discomfort about Uberoth. 
and the permissive culture of greed emerging in baseball. What emerged, Diane, over about a two-week period in 1989 could be crafted into the first battle of the allegorical drama he anticipated, with Jamadi always focused on attaining the Elysian field at the end of the battle and keenly aware of the snakes in the garden to get there. We have the writings of Faye Vincent, Roger Kahn, Kahn's personal papers, and Sports Illustrated editor Kostia Kennedy. We also have the benefit of the work of John Dowd, the special counsel to the commissioner. Take us through not the well-known story of these meetings, but some of the unique threads of it. I will. In February 1989, Commissioner Uberoth informed Jamadi and Faye Vincent that he had received a confidential tip from Sports Illustrated magazine about Rose betting on baseball. Vincent has written that, quote, For Bart and me, the claim about Rose came totally out of the blue. There was no preamble to it. Costia Kennedy makes clear, however, that before that meeting, Uberoth had launched his own investigation that later John Dowd described as beginning almost a year earlier. Uberoth, it appears, kept that fact from Jamadi, who was president of the National League at the time where Rose played. Nor when he could did Uberoth make a decision about Rose. So the tension may be the suspicion between Jamadi and Uberoth was likely mutual. That Giamatti was too exacting, too committed to preserving baseball as an ethically authentic game rather than a financial industry? Yes. Ruberoff's disquieting fealty to the owner's greed was well known by then in the form of the collusion he encouraged among the owners to thwart players from negotiating higher salaries. Only the owners mattered. And he was caught in the act. It was a premeditated act a form of cheating. He engaged in what we'd now call the amoral early Mark Zuckerberg mentality, as did the owners. That cheating was widely witnessed by others, not only players. Jamadi challenged that mentality. At the February meeting, Uberoff immediately proposed to Jamadi and Vincent that he keep the responsibility for dealing with Rose exclusively to himself, to stay on as a kind of special decision maker to handle Rose as if Rose's conduct was a mere transaction to be negotiated, or maybe a way he could show, once again, that he could protect the flow of money to the owners. Jamadi rejected that. Jamadi, Costia Kennedy writes, quote, wanted to take it on. He welcomed the responsibility, he said, and he welcomed the challenge of doing it right. Faye Vincent adds that Jamadi, like Landis before him, who had disposed of the other two commissioners who existed at the time he was hired, knew there could be only one commissioner. Faye Vincent also brought to these meetings with Uberoff sophisticated and experienced skill as the lawyer, the skill at adding definition to how a decision was to be made and recognizing the lengthy process required for a serious and visible investigation not just as procedure to be followed, Diane, but also as an argument that put Uberoff in his place ethically. And one critical thread in that was Vincent's insistence that Uberoff retain John Dowd. Though that didn't bring Uberoff's mischief to an end, Neil? No, not yet. That gets us to the next meeting, February 21, 1989. We know that when confronted with Faye Vincent's question about gambling on baseball and the Reds at the meeting with Giamatti and Uberoth, Rose denied it. 
his first lie and with his lawyers present. Rose's personal lawyer, according to Vincent, actually affirmed Rose's lie. Another widely known collaborative ethical lapse we will return to. But Uberoff, to answer your question, he goes further. As Faye Vincent explained it, in response to the New York Times inquiry about the Rose meeting, which the parties had all agreed would not be acknowledged, quote, Uberoff confirmed the meeting with Rose and more seriously dismissed any gambling allegations as untrue. Uberoff, Vincent concludes, quote, was now on record as believing Rose. Rose's lie had, in a public way, worked. In the private world of baseball, the distinction between Peter Uberoff and A. Bartlett Giamatti about a commissioner's duty could not have been starker. John Dowd acquired critical evidence of Rose gambling on baseball and the Reds within a few weeks. He was experienced and thorough. Let's stick with what's less known, including in the judicial challenges Rose later filed to stop Giamatti from acting. The less known facts emerged during John Dowd's investigation between February 1989 and August 1989 and takes us actually deeper into Giamatti's life. First, Tony Smith Giamatti, Bart's wife. Dowd said, quote, Sometimes it was late at night. His wife was a schoolteacher, always had 15 questions. I'm up until 11 answering Tony's questions. Faye Vincent also recounts Tony's insistence on questioning him about facts and press reports, some very critical of Bart, and wanting to understand their strategy. You write about her life in Fearless and their relationship. Tony Giamatti taught English in a private school in New Haven. She was the first wife of a Yale president to have a professional life. And she had serious acting skills, which is how they met. Most important to Dowd and Vincent's experience with her, she knew theater, had always counseled Bart on the content and manner of making his public presentations. She had the essential insight into his temperament like no one else. Yet there was more at stake for her and Bart. There was Diane. She had an acute sensitivity to her husband's knowledge of fate, the uncertainties in life, especially in the Southern Italian immigrant experience in Italy and in America. The law, how it was manipulated and abused by those who had the power to do so was a fact he understood, wrote about, and witnessed. That abuse of power also prevailed in Yale's history. There also Diane is a gratuitous and inaccurate critique by Faye Vincent. He wrote, quote, Bart did not have the same stomach for a fight I had. His kind of fight was over the proper interpretation of Dante. Foremost, Giamatti was in the line of fire, practical and historical, not Vincent. Second, Giamatti had plenty of battles, visible nationally and very hard, at Yale with faculty, students, the Yale Corporation, and labor unions. He didn't shy away from any of them. Critical as well was that he knew how to anticipate them, to avoid mistakes, to take the long view in a long quest when the responsibility for doing so was his. Tony Giamatti knew that as well. Faye Vincent did not. She was intent on knowledgeably aiding her husband. Let's stay with that. In Fearless, you write that Giamatti, quote, did not seek a safe haven. It's been said repeatedly 
that Jamadi was hardened to controversy by the labor strike at Yale. His temperament, the title of the book Fearless, was formed much earlier in childhood, and it was physical as well as intellectual. And it was further tempered at Yale. He daily experienced controversy and battles over principles among prima donna faculty, the vice president he fired, the Yale Corporation he disagreed with publicly and vigorously, and students demonstrating, arguing, and engaging him in public phrase that he welcomed and embraced. He took on the moral majority of the Reagan administration on education. All played out in newspapers throughout the nation. He also was a keen listener. He despised claims of special privilege and any form of discrimination and said so boldly at Yale and elsewhere. Fairness to everyone mattered. He didn't have Uberoff's ambivalence or marketplace orientation. He had no fear of Pete Rose or the people who came to Rose's aid. He had no fear of Uberoff. It's in this context of special privilege that one well-known comment by Rose's lawyer warrants mention. During this period of the investigation and the litigation to stop it, Reuven Katz, Rose's lawyer, said to Faye Vincent, quote, Pete believes he is a national treasure and so do we. Vincent writes, quote, I called Bart. His response was classic. I'll show him who the national treasure is. That's pathetic. Diane, that self-centered arrogance typified not only the cult mentality Jamadi warned against in his University of Michigan lectures, but the special privilege he abhorred and spoke against at Yale. No one was above the rules. Everyone had the duty to act responsibly. There also was one broad and consequential legal approach. Actually, it was more than a legal approach that Bart Giamatti insisted on that Dowd has discussed. Yes, and John Dowd trusted and later praised Giamatti for it. When Dowd was first retained, Giamatti told him, as Dowd described it, quote, he gave me one admonition, whatever you do, the world will see. And quote, things he thought of that we didn't that turned out to be very wise. A wonderful mind he had. He was a joy to be with. Jamadi had instructed Dowd, quoting Dowd, I want you to brief his lawyers on the progress of the investigation every week. And Dowd did. And Jamadi also directed him to turn over all his files and notes, what lawyers referred to as work product, normally protected from disclosure. Dowd did that as well. Did Giamatti's directives about disclosure go back to Yale, to his childhood? Both, actually, Diane. It goes fundamentally to fairness and to his experience at Yale with the process of making decisions about faculty and students, where knowing the truth or knowing about complaints warranted they be shared timely, and there be a dialogue about accuracy and improvement, not punishment. Giamatti also had a street sense, which Dowd recognized as well. He did not want to give Rose, actually Rose's lawyers, any basis for complaining. They did not have timely access to everything Jamadi received. Keep in mind, as Jamadi later explained, this is the first such serious breach of the gambling prohibition rule since Landis and the Black Sox scandal. Jamadi wanted to ensure the process had complete integrity in order to ensure the game did. But John Dowd goes further. Here, Jamadi, and Dowd was especially helpful in trying to make this happen. 
Jamadi searched for a way to get Rose to acknowledge his wrongdoing, to get counseling, which Jamadi as commissioner would help arrange. Perhaps to travel across the country, to become a model for younger players, to connect baseball to its fans and values. As Dowd explained it, he, Dowd, even offered to meet privately with Rose to explore such possibilities. And such a meeting appeared likely until Rose's lawyers objected. This controversy, Diane, might have had a different outcome. For our purpose, it raises once again the disquieting ethical questions that tempered Rose's lawyers, all of them, what John Dowd repeatedly refers to as, quote, integrity and the question of its absence. Rose's lawsuit in state court is shortly filed to stop Giamatti from deciding the allegation of gambling. And Rose lies under oath about gambling on baseball and his own team. So how could the truth not be known or easily discovered by his presumably sophisticated lawyers? This is the ethical question you and John Dowd allude to that occurred in a court of law under oath. But it's actually more than that, isn't it? The signal is sent about how the lawyers, baseball's non-players, can go beyond the edge, can collaborate in what Giamatti admonished against at the University of Michigan Law School. Quote, the amoral quest, the hunger to win at any cost, even at the cost of destroying the game. Destroying the game. In the formal lawsuit that all of Rose's lawyers signed from three law firms, they wrote, quote, specifically, unless immediate injunctive relief is granted to restrain a hearing set for June 26, 1989 in New York City, Pete Rose will be forced to rebut false accusations that he bet on baseball that are contained in an era-hidden report prepared by agents of the Commissioner of Baseball. Diane, those so-called accusations in the report were fact-based and not false. And neither Rose nor his lawyers ever offered any concrete evidence to rebut them other than Rose's lie. What, Diane, were they thinking? And what did they do to learn the truth? And most importantly, what was the signal they sent to others, those watching and those waiting, those snakes in the garden? There's one more thread in this battle, Neil. You alluded to it earlier, and it continued throughout the Dowd investigation and the lawsuit, and how and why others lent credence to Rose's lie. The book, Rose's Planned Biography. Rose's agent for the book also was his lawyer in court. Ethical questions abound in such a dual, easily conflict-ridden arrangement. The highly acclaimed author Roger Kahn, knowing of Rose's suspect criminal friends, took to the media to exacerbate the controversy. May 12, 1989, in USA Today. The headline, Don't Suspend Rose, Suspend Commissioner. Khan, in his disquieting form of personal attack on Jamadi, said, quote, But this kind of guilt by association is nothing more than McCarthyism. It has been an investigation by rumor, innuendo, and leaks. Then Khan revealed his real intention. Quote, I look at the controversy on two levels, he said. On the one hand, what a rough thing for Pete. On the other, controversy never hurt a book. 
Macmillan Publishing internally did raise questions. In June 1989, as more factual evidence about Rose's gambling was publicized, Macmillan wanted Roger Kahn to pose questions to Rose, quote, due to the allegations regarding betting in Pete's life. Foremost, it wanted Kahn to ask, quote, does Pete admit to gambling on baseball and the Reds? He must answer this honestly. Macmillan continued to support the book's planned publication until Commissioner A. Bartlett Giamatti took to the podium and announced his decision on August 24, 1989. On that same day, according to an internal document preserved by Roger Kahn, Macmillan was told that Rose's contract, quote, does not stipulate our countenancing deception and bad faith. It is sad and farcical in retrospect, Diane, and it didn't matter. When the book Pete Rose, My Story was finally published, Kahn and Macmillan had accepted the lie. Baseball had a new, bigger, and more insidious battle on its hands, encouraged by Rose and his lawyers and publishers and writer. All of this will be explored in Episode 2, Downfall, Baseball's Public Trust and the Battle for the Game. How was Rose and his collaborators' conduct understood by gamblers, drug distributors, steroid users, players, and then accepted by whole teams, including commissioners, including the current commissioner, abetted in time by these non-players hired by management who saw the money and sought the edge, including those, as Ben Ryder of Sports Illustrated explained, that were from Ivy League schools, often filled with amoral detachment from blue-collar fans, an attitude that Giamatti, as Yale president, had witnessed and detested. They had elevated the Silicon Valley, Wall Street, early Mark Zuckerberg mentality into the norm, where it is today, where cheating seems to bear no relationship to the game except the hunger to win at any cost. Values about greed and the elevation of the cult figure have changed. Giamatti saw it coming and sought to understand it. And once again, we'll return to Neil's opening admonition to understand what Giamatti really saw in Pete Rose. Foremost, you need to understand Giamatti. We're going to end this episode where we will begin Episode 2, Downfall, Baseball's Public Trust and the Battle for the Game, with the words of Commissioner A. Bartlett Giamatti, which he addressed to the public, not just to baseball. Let there be no doubt or dissent about our goals for baseball or our dedication to it, nor about our vigilance and vigor and indeed our patience in protecting the game from blemish or stain disgrace. I'm Diane Smith, and this is Downfall, Episode 1, The Threat and the Strategy, written and devised by Neil Thomas Proto, production, sound, and editing by Baobab Tree Studios, music provided by freeplaymusic.com. Special gratitude to Yale University's Manuscripts and Archives, the Baseball Hall of Fame, Peter Norton Symphony Space Selected Shorts, CNN, and Associate Professor and Actor Marcus Bartlett Giamatti of Temple University's School of Theater, Film, and Media Arts. 